foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. All right. We left this off at Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 3. So we'll pick this up in verse 4 tonight. But let's do a quick review of where we're at before we start. Remember that the sixth seal has been opened by the Lamb. And in chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, we saw earthquakes, all kinds of things happening in the heavens, a general upheaval of nature to the extent that the inhabitants of the earth that are unbelievers said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us. So then we start in chapter 7, which a lot of the commentators believe is really an interlude, a kind of a timeout from giving us the chain of events from the timeline, so to speak. When the seventh seal is broken, it will be the beginning of the seven shofars. The sixth seal has been opened, and we've looked at that. The seventh seal is coming up, and in the interim, in chapter 7, we're given two distinct visions. It's sort of like in the theater where... The play has a couple of scenes that come in ever so often showing what is going on around the main plot or progression or theme. Sub-themes that are tied directly to the main theme. In verse 1, a new vision is opened. Some commentators think that this is still part of the sixth seal. The point is, there are two new visions being introduced here before we get to the opening of the seventh seal. In the first vision, John sees four angels in the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that they would not blow on the land or on the sea or on any tree. These winds, whatever force they represent, are obviously going to bring harm to the aforementioned land, sea, and trees. Then another angel comes out from the east with a seal from the living God and shouts to the four angels to not let go of the four winds that would harm the land, the sea, or the trees until the servants of God receive the seal of God on their foreheads. So then, that brings us up to verse 4. Now, very, very interesting. We begin to describe those who and how many are to receive the seal. Verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 are most interesting, but I'd like to start out with something just so we can get the feel of this here. We, we're certainly in the tribulation period, but let's go to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, where we find a happening that might well be during the time of the sealing of the 144,000. Daniel 7.23 begins, This is what he said, The fourth animal will be the fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten horns will arise, and yet another will arise after them. Now he will be different than the earlier ones, and he will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. What's interesting in this last statement that the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and a half times, in other words, three and a half years. 
and the breaking of the seals of the scroll when the fifth seal is broken. There's a lot of consensus that this is at the middle part of the tribulation period. A thought is that the first three and a half years is tribulation of man against man. Beyond that, the last three and a half years is the great tribulation, the wrath of God being poured out on man. So here we are at the end of the sixth seal. If the consensus is right, we're right at the end of the first three and a half years, or certainly this will be just after this. If the consensus is right, the holy ones are turned over to the false Messiah, who isn't revealed until the middle of the seven years. Our verses here in Revelation chapter 7 could be at this time. So let's look at these verses, verses 4 through 8, Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, if you will. I heard how many were sealed. 144,000 from every tribe of the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Spells it out very, very directly. A list of who is sealed, how many they are, and where they're from. Specifically, they were from nearly all the tribes of Israel. To be sealed are 144,000 from nearly all the tribes of Israel. But Dan is excluded from this list that we just read. Dan is excluded. We don't learn too much about these 144,000 here, just that they're sealed with the seal of the living God. We'll see them again in chapter 14 with more detail. Some commentaries believe that they go throughout the world and evangelize. And if that's what they do, consider what it says in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. That says, I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. This could be a final fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. I think this passage certainly influences those who feel that the 144,000 evangelized the world although there's no text proof of this kind of activity for the 144,000. But think of everything that's come to the world as a blessing from the people referred to as the Jews. The Bible was given through Israel. It was preserved through the efforts of Israel. Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. John, through whom this revelation is coming, is a Jew himself. So certainly all the nations of the earth have been blessed through Israel. Now, people have messed around with this 144,000. For instance, 12 is held by some to be a number representing completeness, and 12 times 12, or 12 squared, would then be perfection. Some have even gone so far as to say when you take 12 times 12 for perfection and multiply it times 10 cubed, you have absolute perfection. 
which sounds like redundancy to me, but some people have thought that, and I thought I'd just pass that on to you. Also, some people feel the term sealed here is permanent. I can find little to cast doubt on that, but there gets to be considerable controversy among commentaries, though, as to who these 144,000 really are. And there really is a lot of controversy. Some of it makes sense. Some of it's wishful thinking. We can actually take information from a couple of contemporary Messianic Jews with divergent theories uh, to compare it. It's interesting, uh, though, that most of the commentaries are written by Gentiles. And they tend to lean toward the idea that this sealing of the 144,000 is the sealing of the church. And that the church is now Israel having replaced Israel. And all of this confuses me because if the church was raptured before the start of the tribulation, which is an active theology, then the church is gone by this point. So how can the church who isn't here anymore end up being sealed, much less turned into Israel, who is now being dealt with by God, now that the church is gone? It just kind of don't make sense. But the idea is, among some, that this 144,000 really isn't made up of all the tribes of Israel, but it is of the church. And that's what is generally called replacement theology. That's what build they build a replacement theology from. And we're not going to get into any kind of argument replacing replacement theology uh, this evening. Uh, that gets into a whole new different series of teachings, and our goal really has become actually getting through this revelation study before Messiah returns to set up his kingdom. So I'm not going to add volumes of replacement theology, which I believe is foolishness anyway, if we pay attention to Scripture. Vast amounts of both Old Testament and New Testament have been spiritualized to make replacement theology work. Do we know what spiritualizing is? Well, that's where someone says Scripture isn't really saying what it's saying. Here's what it's actually saying. The other side of this is to take what Scripture is saying here literally. And John states that the 144,000 will be taken from all the tribes of Israel. Then he lists 12 tribes. And how many are taken from each of these 12 tribes? Make this be anyone other than Israel would require that the language here be ignored and the concept drawn up that God's completely through with Israel, which requires ripping a lot of pages out of the Bible. None of the Messianic commentators take a replacement position. These are tribes of Israel. I agree with this position. Now then, something interesting. When the tribes that are listed here are examined by name, The tribe of Ephraim is left out, but the tribe of Joseph is included. When the tribes were formed, two of the tribes came from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. When the inheritance of the land was distributed, there was no land given to Joseph. It was given to the true two tribes formed from Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the reason for that is because Levi... Levi receives no inheritance of land, the tribe of Levi. Levi is not counted as one of the twelve for that purpose. Levi ends up being scattered throughout all of the tribes, and his purpose is not to have a land of his own, 
but to control the temple. Let's look at Joshua, chapter 13, verse 14. Only to the tribe of Levi did Moses give no inheritance, because the offerings made by fire for Adonai, the God of Israel, are its inheritance, as Adonai has said to Moses. The offerings to God himself is the inheritance of Levi. But here, Revelation chapter 7, the tribe of Levi is included. Manasseh is included, but Joseph is listed in place of Ephraim, and the tribe of Dan is left out. Are we confused yet? This is one of those deals where you can't tell the players without a program. And this is just a little bit more than sort of complicated. Ephraim is left out. Manasseh is included. Joseph is counted as a tribe. Well, if Ephraim is left out, he's one of Joseph's sons, so you could insert Joseph into that position. The tribe of Dan is left out. Now, there's a couple of reasons floating around as to why Dan is left out. First, there is a theory, there is is the theory, that the false messiah comes from the tribe of Dan. Of course, there's a problem that this doesn't comport with what Daniel tells us about the origin of the false messiah. Let's look at Daniel 9.26. It says, Then after 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, that's Jerusalem and the temple, but his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. As far as I can discover it, it wasn't the tribe of Dan that destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, it was Rome. Rome came in and did this. So that sort of explodes that theory that the false messiah comes from the tribe of Dan. Then there's the idea that it was because Dan was the first of the tribes to turn to idolatry that he's not included. That theory has some reasonable basis, and it also includes Ephraim. I'm going to give you a very long piece of scripture that we're going to read through in Judges, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, but I think it'll help us understand this all more clearly. Beginning in Judges 17.1, there was a man from the hills of Ephraim named Micaiu. He said to his mother, you know the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you. You pronounced a curse about that and you told me about that. Well, that money is with me. I took it. His mother said, may Adonai bless you, my son, as he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. Then his mother said, I solemnly dedicate this money of mine to Adonai in order for my son to make a carved image, listen to this, in order for my son to make a carved image overlaid with silver. So now I'm giving it back to you. So he returned the money to his mother. She took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the metal worker who made a carved image overlaid with silver which was put in Mechayehu's house. This man, Micah, owned a house of God, so he made a ritual vest and household gods and consecrated one of his sons who became his Cohen, his priest. See, this is a little off the rocker, right? You're following this. At that time, there was no king in Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Land has been split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. 
There was no king in Israel, the northern kingdom. A man simply did whatever he thought was right. There was a young man from Bethlehem of Judah, from the family of Judah, who was a Levite. He had been staying in Bethlehem, but he left there to find another place to live, and he came to the heels of Ephraim, where eventually he made his way to the house of Micah. That's where all this business has been going on about the money and the false idol being made. Micah asked him, him what are, where are you coming from? He answered, I'm a Levi, a Levite, from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm looking for a place to live. Micah replied, Stay with me and be a father and a Kohen to me, a priest to me. I will give you ten pieces of silver a year in addition to your food and clothing. So the Levi went in and agreed to stay with the man. The young man became like one of his sons. After Micah consecrated the Levi, the young man became his priest and stayed there in Micah's house. Micah said, Now I know that Adonai will treat me well because I have a Levite for a Kohen. At that time, there was no king in Israel. And it was also at that time that the tribe of Dan was looking for a place to claim ownership of and settle in since they had not yet been given any land of their own among the tribes of Israel. The people of Dan sent five leading men from Zorah and Estaol, representing their whole tribe, to spy out and explore the land. They instructed them, go and explore the land. They came to the hills of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and stayed there. So they've entered into this house of Micah, who's brought in a Levite and made him the priest of his house, which he is calling a temple where his mother has built this idol and set it up. Stay with me. Oh, I tell you, this is such fascinating stuff. The false messiah. Again, this is one of these that you can't really tell the players without a program. Judges 1, 18, 1 through 6. We've just read the first two, two verses. I want to read you now 3 through 5. While they were at Micah's house, they recognized the accent of the young man, the Levite. So they approached him and said, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is there for you here? And he answered, Here's the arrangement Micah has made with me. He pays me a wage, and I serve as his Cohen, his priest. And they said to him, Please ask God whether our journey will be successful. And the Cohen replied, Don't worry, Adonai is with you on this journey. So we've got a whole bunch of false material taking place here concerning this special house, this Levite, who is not really a priest, but has been declared one by somebody who has no authority to. And we have the people of Dan who are searching for a place to put their tribe because they really don't have any place to put one in yet. Now, this this really, frankly, all gets to be fascinating and fascinating and, and to me, hugely, hugely interesting. Judges 18, 1 through 6, we've just read, tells us while all priests are from Levite, I'm going to tell you all Levites are not Cohen's, fact have. Only those descended from Aaron can become priests. 
Everyone else in the tribe are simply referred to as Levites, and this young Levite was not a legitimate Kohen, not a legitimate priest. Micah's house was not a legitimate temple of God. His ephod was a counterfeit of the high priest. And then there was the silver idol. A false religion was in place here. So, back in in Judges 18, we're going to read verses 14 through 19. The men who had gone to spy out the land of Laish said to their kinsmen, Are you aware that in these buildings there is a ritual vest, household gods, and a carved image overlaid with silver? Decide what you ought to do. They turned off the road and went to the house of the young Levi. This was Micah's house and asked what he was doing. The 600 soldiers from Dan stayed at the gate while five who had spied out the land went in and took the idol overlaid with silver, the vest, and the household gods. The Kohen, the priest, had stayed with the 600 soldiers by the gate, but when they went into Micah's house and took the silver-covered image, the vest, and the household gods, the Kohen asked them, What are you doing? And they replied, Be quiet, keep your mouth shut, and come with us. Be a father and a Kohen to us. Which is better, to be a Kohen in the house of one man, or to be the Kohen of a whole tribe and family of Israel? This made the Kohen, the priest, feel much better. Now remember, he's a fake. So he took the ritual vest, the household goods, and the image, and went off with the people of Dan. Well, isn't that fascinating? Dan became the first tribe recorded in Israel to turn to idolatry. And he did it from the influence out of the tribe of Ephraim. This is why Ephraim and Dan are not included in the tribes out of which the 144,000 will come. They turned ugly. We really don't know for sure, but this sure has gotten God's attention. An interesting addendum to this is the fact that after Solomon, when Israel's tribes were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel, adopted paganism. They cast two golden calves, one of which was placed at Bethel, site of the tabernacle in the desert's final resting place, and the other one was placed with Dan, with the tribe of Dan, first of the tribes to to adopt paganism. Here, Revelation 7, that we're exploring, Dan and Ephraim are left out and no direct reason is given. We can speculate, but the truth of the matter is we just don't know. In fact, there's really something else to consider, if you will. The order in which the tribes of Israel are listed here in Revelation 7 is different, is new. It's only listed in this order, in this one place. Judah, which is the tribe Yeshua comes from, Judah is not the oldest son of Abram, but Judah is placed in front of the oldest son, Reuben. But again, this is not unusual. It's interesting that out of the 20 lists of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 18 of them are listed in different orders. Something is meant by this. Nothing's done for filler or haphazardly in Scripture. Something's meant by this different orders of listings. We just haven't figured out yet what it means. Something to file away for future reference. Why the specific names on this list? Why the specific order? They're a clue to something. 
We just don't know what yet. Now, there are a couple more things I want to give you about the 144,000. Some believe that the 144,000 are also said to be first fruits from among humanity taken to God and the Lamb, which is stated in Revelation 14.4. The thought is that they're the forerunners of a host of Jewish people who will survive the day of the Lord and come to the Savior at the end of the 70th week. Also, some hold that the 144,000 become evangelists. But I find nowhere in the Bible where they're called evangelists has been popularly proclaimed by many. Interestingly, most don't even get into whether they're saved or not at the time of their, of, of their sealing, this 144,000. This is not something that's important to them. This is, an, I guess, an automatic thought in their minds. This is what they agree on. What is abundantly clear and what was obviously important to the angel is the fact that the 144,000 Jews must be sealed before the day of the Lord's wrath begins. they got to be sealed to exempt them from this wrath. The details may be debated, but that central fact cannot be. So they're saying that 144,000 are Jews, period. There's no debate about it, notwithstanding what some of the Gentile commentators say. Some Messianic Jews say that in verses 4 through 8, which is what we're looking at, the identification of those who are sealed is clearly specified to be 144,000 Jews. To make it even more clear, 12 tribes are listed with the statement that 1,200 come from each of these tribes. Such careful delineation definitely indicates that these 144,000 are Jews and nothing else, in spite of speculations and speculation to the contrary. Some then go on to talk about the fifth shofar judgment, in which those that are sealed not being harmed by demons released from the abyss, and we'll get into that later. But many Messianic Jews hold that the 144,000 are excluded from any harm in this demonic invasion and also state that they think that will include all of the believers at that time. One of the most interesting, one objection sometimes made to interpreting these as 144,000, is that there is supposedly no reason that Jews would be singled out for special protection. Such thinking contradicts the whole salvation history as set forth in the Old Testament and reflects an unawareness, I believe, on the part of Gentile Christian commentators that they have been joined to Israel. That's what I believe Scripture is showing us, that the Gentile believers ultimately have been joined to Israel to the Jewish people. God, by His grace, singled out the Jewish people for special protection for thousands of years after centuries of dispersion and persecution culminating in the Holocaust. We would not have existed at all without such protection. This protection is promised over and over by the prophets, even when Israel becomes sinful and breaks covenant, although it's not always promised to the entire people, but only to a remnant such as the 144,000. 
Moreover, the sealing of the Jewish people corresponds specifically to God's promise in Zechariah 9:14 through 16. Also thrown in is the comment that Jehovah's Witnesses used to claim that their inheritance consisted of 144,000. When their membership exceeded this number, they simply revised their theology. Something else that's interesting, everyone knows who Samuel L. Clemens is, right, Mark Twain? There's a statement that he made that appeared in Harper's Magazine in 1898. It says, talking about the Jewish people, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed in a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, and it burned out. And they said in the twilight, now are vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmity of age, no weakness of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All these things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What's the secret of his immortality? That's from Mark Twain. If the Jew ceases to exist, then the word of God relating to redemption cannot be fulfilled. It's as simple as that, really. Also consider the matter of the 144,000 Jews that are sealed. Scripture tells us that when God presents things, He presents it first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We'll look at that again in chapter 14. Now, let's look at the next vision, if you will. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a huge crowd. This is John speaking. After this, I, John, looked, and there before me was a huge crowd, too large for anyone to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they shouted, Victory to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice who's in this group. A huge crowd. Too large for anyone to count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This introduces a new vision following that of the 144,000, that vision of the 144,000. And many think it indicates a much later event. The 144,000 are sealed. This happens after that. What John sees is expressed in vivid language. He saw a great multitude of people that no one could count. The description of his vision here is a group of people that's so large that a single person would be unable to count them. If we notice something back in Revelation 5.11, I want us to read this again just to bring it up to date. He says, Then I looked and I heard the sound of a vast number of angels, thousands and thousands, millions of millions. They were all around the throne, the living beings and the elders. Here John uses numbers like that, thousands and thousands, millions and millions. Here he's saying that 
The crowd that's there is too large to even assign numbers to. He doesn't even use numbers. This multitude of earth, not heaven, because of their stated origin, are not angels. They're from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Here we have a description of this crowd, people who lived on earth, who are now up before the throne of God and in front of the Lamb. Do we have any idea of how many languages there are on earth? In the archipelago, the islands of the Aegean Sea, on just one of those islands, there are six distinct languages. Not dialects. Distinct languages. We still don't know how many total languages there are on the earth as new people are being discovered in remote places. Anyhow, the 144,000 Jews are set aside and sealed. And then another group is brought in before the throne of God, which includes Gentiles from all tribes, nations, etc., speaking all languages of the earth. So this is what follows the 144,000 representing Jews being sealed to God. Then the rest of the world is brought before God. All right. We still don't know how many total languages there are. But anyway, this unaccountable crowd is all standing before the throne, and it says they're wearing white robes. They're wearing white robes. The Greek word for white robe here is stolos. And a stolos is really a very long, elegant robe. The robes were white, as we've seen earlier in our study. White relates to victory, to righteousness. It relates essentially to salvation. So the fact that these are standing before the throne are not just wearing robes, but white robes is significant. It's interesting that this phraseology, every nation, tribe, people, and language, is used in the book of Revelation seven times. Revelation 11.9, if you will, says, Some from the nations, tribes, language, and people see their bodies for three and a half days and do not permit the corpses to be placed in the tomb. This is where two witnesses have been killed. They see the two witnesses, people from nations, tribes, language, and people see their bodies, the two witnesses, for three and a half years, but do not permit their corpses to be placed in the tombs. Where the two witnesses were laying in the streets of Jerusalem. Revelation 13.7 It was allowed to make war on God's holy people and defeat them and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. This is the false Messiah taking control. The beast. This is why we have all these people in Revelation 7.9 coming from every tribe, people, and nation. They've seen the event of the two witnesses on the news and now the false Messiah comes to power. I think there's significance there. Revelation 14.6 Next I saw an angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. These four groups, these same four groups, used to get the point over that it is to speak of every single person on the planet, each of these is a significant event that involves in some way all of the world's population. All of the world's population. 
Back in Revelation 7-9, it also says that they were holding palm branches in their hands. Remember that? Palm branches? It's interesting that when we create booths in the fall at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Sukkot, palm branches are involved. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23 verse 40. On the first day, that is of that particular time, that's a time where all Israel gathers to the land. On the first day you're to take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches and river willows and celebrate in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. It's interesting that Sukkot or Booths immediately follows the Day of Atonement. It's really a picture, I believe, of the millennial reign. Celebrating that is to take place before Adonai is the Sukkot, and it's celebrated with palm fronds, celebrating the presence of Adonai for seven days. Then in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come for the festival heard that Yeshua was on his way to Jerusalem, And look in verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meeting, shouting, Deliver us, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai, the king of Israel. This was Yeshua entering Jerusalem. T minus four days and counting, and the crowds took palm branches when they went out to greeting. The picture is they were greeting him as the coming king, not as the coming sacrifice for their sins. This was at Passover when he was coming up to be the subject of the sin offering. And here, though, they were greeting him as if it were at the time of the fall feast of Sukkot, looking forward to the rule of Messiah over all the earth's inhabitants. The feasts lay out the entire history of Messiah on the earth. Spring feasts and the fall feasts, all in Leviticus chapter 23. And they not only lay out the entire history of Messiah on the earth, they also are laid out some things that haven't happened yet, that are still in our future. Revelation 7-9 goes beyond that, into eternity. And as the people come before the throne of God and before the Lamb, they're holding palm branches. This is a distinctive group, not seen by John before in any other vision. That group that was in Revelation 6, 9 through 10 at the opening of the fifth seal was positioned under the altar. And these here, that include all of the Gentiles of the world, are positioned around the throne in front of the Lamb. The group under the altar were souls. These have bodies, hands with which hold the palm branches. So this is happening at a time when the earth I believe is being harvested of the believers that are living at that time. John knows who the group under the altar are. When we get to Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14, we'll see that he doesn't know who this group is that are before the throne with the palm branches that we've been looking at. John also hears this group give praise to God in a loud voice. And the theme of the praise is victory, which is essentially deliverance and salvation. These are probably people who have emerged from ordinary strife, or extraordinary strife, I should say. Extraordinary strife. 
They've emerged from this by the hand of God and the Lamb. And they're giving God and the Lamb praise for their victory. Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 and 12 said, All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living beings. They fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. First of all, we have a group that's already familiar to us here. The angels around the throne. Then the elders and the four living beings. And they all fall down worshiping before the throne of God. Look at how this is before the throne of God. Four living beings are closest. Then in an ark there are the twenty-four elders. Beyond them the multitudes of the angels spoken in Revelation uh, 5.11. All around the throne. Then there's this uncountable magnitude in white robes giving homage to God. The angelic beings and the twenty-four elders begin their praise with Amen, agreeing to what the multitudes are saying already, affirming what's just been said in verse 10. And then they give out praise. And we have to note here that this praise gives seven attributes of God. And here we are again with the Indication of perfection. Count these seven attributes of God. It's talking about praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, strength. Seven attributes specifically mentioned. Most of the translations don't show this, but each of these attributes is preceded by a Greek article, which is like the English article, the. These would read, the praise. The glory, the wisdom, the thanks, the honor, the power, the strength. The meaning of the article in this context would mean above all others. In God, each of these attributes is above what they would be in anyone else that might appear. They conclude that these go to our God forever and ever, which puts the entire praise statement in the context of eternity. This praise is in the context of eternal. Not just a passing thing, but this praise is eternal. They end up with the affirming statement, which is Amen. So be it. So that ends what I have you for tonight. We'll finish up the seventh chapter of Revelation next week, and I think when we plug that in, you will have a lot of this come to a little clearer thought and thinking. So we'll stop with this. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program.